Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here at, uh, at Trinity. And uh, at this point, we want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you'd like to go, um, teacher meet you in the back. Um, before we start, real quick, we didn't get the bulletins printed this week because of sickness. So if uh, I know, you know, we print the, the scripture text in the bulletin. So if you need a Bible, would you just kind of wave real quick and we can go grab you a Bible real quick if, if that would be helpful. Um, it's kind of passe because everybody's got them on their cell phones, you know, so <laughs> that's usually not an issue these days. Okay, so I uh, got that out of the way. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll take a look at the Word. Lord, in you we live, and we move, and we have our being. Lord, because you are the creator of all things. And so, Lord, this morning we pray for uh, those in our congregation and those we know uh, who are not feeling well. And Lord, sickness is, is kind of going around a lot these days, uh, the winter colds and those kind of things. And so, Lord, we pray for uh, all of our, our, our friends and our congregation uh, who are ill. And Lord, we pray that during this sickness, you would be their strength and their hope. Lord, that in their weakness, they would find you to be beautiful and to be sufficient and to be enough. And Lord, you on regular occasions healed. And so we know that it's within your power and under your wisdom. So would you heal those in our congregation who are uh, sick with uh, minor calls to, to major issues and have mercy in them, we pray. Uh, Lord, we, um, we confess that all mankind is sick from uh, uh, an illness called sin. And so we pray, Lord, uh, since sin has corrupted all of our understanding, all of our thoughts, our reason, Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, set that aside now and come in and pierce through the darkness with your word. Lord, we need you to shine on your word, to illuminate it to our hearts and minds and to apply it for us. So, Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to the preaching of your word? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're, um, we're finishing up Acts 17. You remember where we were last week? Paul had gone through uh, Thessalonica and on to Berea. And in Berea, the Thessalonians didn't like him, so they chased him down and, and they shuffled him out of the town by night. And so that's why we read 15 is to kind of remind us what had happened is they, they got him out of uh, Berea because the Thessalonians were coming after him and they shipped him off to uh, Athens. Now where he's at is he's in Athens, but Silas and Timothy, his two traveling companions, are still in Thessalonica or in uh, Berea. And so as, as the companions who came with him left, he reminded them, make sure they come to me. And so that's where we find Paul this morning is he's now in Athens. And um, the, the thing about Athens is it's, it was at one time the greatest city in the world, renowned for its teaching, for its philosophy. The roots of modern democracy were found there. Um, at the height of the Greek empire, Athens was it. Um, when we join Paul there now, it's in the twilight stages. Uh, Athens has really been eclipsed by Rome, whereas Athens was all about wisdom and teaching and, and that kind of stuff. Rome is about power and authority, and it really has supplanted Athens. So the Athens that we're standing in is not the Athens of its glory day. It's beginning to fade. Um, but it's still a respected city. It's not like, you know, third world country or, you know, uh, something like that. It's still a well-respected city. And there's still a lot of learning going on there, and there's still a lot of philosophy. So that's where Paul is. And so while Paul is in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw a city full of idols. There's a joke from the early 
about this time that said it's easier in Athens to find a god than it is a man. It was just polluted with idols. They had all kinds of gods all over the places, temples everywhere. So the, the, the city is full of these idols, which is kind of troubling, isn't it? Because you think, well, I thought this was a city of philosophy and learning and understanding. What we're going to see as we meet some Athenians is it's a little more complicated than that. It's not simply just it's idols. It's, there's a lot going on in this city. So Paul goes in and he sees all these idols and he is provoked his spirit is troubled by this. He's upset by all of these idols. And so what does he do? His response is he goes into the synagogue of the Jews and, he, and the devout persons and he reasons with them. Isn't that something? He sees a city full of idols. And where does he go? To the people who would never worship idols. He goes to the synagogue and he reasons with them. And it's frustrating because we don't know how he reasoned with them. But based on the rest of the journey, I'm pretty sure I know what he did. He went in, he read the scriptures, and he said, this Messiah had to die and had to rise again, and the only person that can fit that bell is this Jesus of Christ, who I'm announcing to you. So that's his answer with the religious people to the idols, is this Jesus is the Messiah. That's the answer to the idols. But the other thing that he did is he went into the marketplace every day. The Agora, this was the big open area where the, the things were sold, where the ideas were exchanged. And he goes there every day, and he reasons with those people as well. He, he goes into the marketplace, and he, he, he addresses anybody he can find who will stop and listen to him. And, and in the day, this was kind of common as philosophers would travel around, peripatetic philosophers would travel around, and they would stop, and they would stand and make their pronouncements, and they would tell their great philosophies. And so it wasn't uncommon for somebody to stand on the street corner and just say, well, here's this thing. So that's what Paul is doing in the, in the marketplace. Now, he runs into some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and conversed with them. So the dialogue happens. I don't want to get all history, philosophy buff stuff, but we do need to introduce the Epicureans and the Stoics. We need to understand what the, who they were. Now, I had a misunderstanding about Epicureans. I thought they were hedonists. And some people are going, OK, two big words, don't know what you mean. Epicureans were these philosophers. They followed the, uh, the teachings of a man named Epicurus. Kind of makes sense, right? And what the hedonist meant, what, when we say hedonist, a hedonist in the, the negative sense means somebody who is just living for pleasure. Uh, what can I get today? What can make me happy today? What pleasure can I indulge in today? And it's very self-centered. It's very self-seeking. And so sometimes Epicureans are compared to or said to be hedonists. But really, they're not hedonists. What the, the Epicurean philosophy was is the best, the good, is pleasure. So that's why people confuse it with, with hedonism. But when they said it was pleasure, it wasn't necessarily earthly, physical pleasures. They said that the best pleasures were, were mental. They were intellectual. They were thoughtful. And the reason for that is because the best that you can seek in Epicurean philosophy is pleasure, the thing to be shunned, the thing that you, can, you have to escape, is suffering. And so they called pleasure good and suffering evil. And so if you're engaging in fleshly pleasures, there's this real possibility that pain and difficulty comes with it. And that's to be shunned. So the Epicureans, they thought, this is what we should be doing. This is what we should be seeking. Their attitude toward the gods were, well, the gods are distant. They're, they're not involved. They're not really an issue for us. 
Why? Because they have achieved the Epicurean ideal. The gods have escaped from all of the suffering, and they, they just push it all on the humans and let the humans deal with it. And so the gods are up there on, on Mount Olympus doing their thing, enjoying pleasure and eschewing pain, being away from pain. Now, the other thing about Epicureans is they were what, what were called atomic materialists. There's another big, big $10 word for the day. What that means is they thought everything was material. There was no immaterial world. So even the gods, in some sense to them, were material. And so that's how the gods could go and escape pain and indulgent pleasures is they had, like I said, pushed it all off on the humans. And they're often out there. Now, the Stoics were a different take, but a similar kind of one. The Stoics believed that everything in nature was God. They were what were called pantheists. So everything is God. So for the Stoic, if you are suffering or if you're experiencing a good time and you war against either one of those, you are warring against the gods and you should never do that. So the Stoic's approach was take whatever comes, deal with it, press through. Life is filled with pain. Life is filled with pleasures. Whatever nature throws at you, you are in line with nature when you just accept it. And you just go, the most beautiful, the most picturesque version I can think of of Stoicism is the movie Gladiator. Marcus Aurelius is in it. Um, uh, Maximus is the hero. And Marcus Aurelius, by the way, was maybe not a Stoic, but he was influenced by, by Stoics. And in the movie, Maximus, his family is killed, he's sold into slavery, and through the whole movie, he just has his face set and he's gonna do what he's gonna do. And, and it's just this, this beautiful picture of what Stoicism is, is he's not gonna war against these things, he's gonna just press forward and go where he goes. So these are the, the ideals that Paul is facing. So picture Paul for a moment in this, this marketplace. The place is littered with idols. Everywhere you turn, there's a little, box with a God carved sitting in it. And as he's beginning to address people and, and talk to them about the God who really is, these Stoic philosophers come to him and they've got two different takes on things and, and they begin to engage with him. And so now you kind of get an idea, why might Paul be provoked by this? What, what uh, might be pushing his button? So they say, they, they begin to converse with him and they say, what is this babbler saying? And the word behind that babbler is kind of an interesting one. It really had to do with um, birds picking up seeds. That was how it was first used. But really quickly after it was used that way, it was also used for people who pick up gossip and spread it. So babbler is not a bad way to translate this. What they're looking at Paul, they're hearing him say these things, and he's, he's like a bird picking up seeds and, and bringing things around. And, and what, what new thing have you got for us? Let's hear what you've got to say. What does this babbler have to say, this picker up of gossip? And then they say, he's interesting, he's worth engaging because he appears to be preaching foreign divinities. Now, that word divinities, notice it doesn't say foreign gods. The word divinities is very carefully chosen. The word there is not theos, where we get theology or God from. It's daemonion, where we get the word demon from. So why don't they just translate it? He appears to be preaching foreign demons because... We get the word demon, and demon has a negative picture. It's, it's a fallen angel. But in Greek, the word daemonion and theos is sometimes used interchangeably. It goes back and forth. So here's, what's, here's why this is important. Why bring this up? I don't drop Greek words just so that you know, I get my money's worth out of that Greek course. 
The reason I bring that up is because they are very careful in saying he seems to be preaching foreign divinities. He seems to be preaching another mode of godhood than what we're familiar with. Another way that gods exist, he seems to be bringing to us this other god. And as we go through this, we'll see this other version of God, how God might exist. The God that Paul preaches is very different than the God that they were familiar with. And so that, that's an accurate description, and it really helps us understand then when Paul goes in and he starts talking about Jesus, why it seems that he's preaching a different mode of divinity, a different type of divinity. And Luke even tells us that. He says he, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Exactly. Which one of their gods would ever become human? They, they sometimes put on human form and faked it, but they would never adopt humanity. Humanity is this, this yucky form of being. It's not divine. Divine is, is much better. They would never do that. What God would take on full human nature, not just a, a put a, a cloak around him and appear to be human, but actually be human. What, what Greek God would ever do that? What Roman God would ever do something like that? And a God who dies? Divinity doesn't die. Gods don't come and die. Gods have escaped death. They've, they've transcended, but they don't, they don't even touch that stuff. That's for humans. What God would die and then rise again? A God would come back to life? Why would he come back to life? He's escaped the material world. He's escaped all that stuff in the, in the physical. He's now ascended. Why would he come back? This is indeed a very different kind of God that Paul is preaching. And so these philosophers are going, now, okay, you caught our attention. We want to hear more about this. Tell us more. And so the next thing they do is they take him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Um, it, the, the, it sounds like they arrested him, doesn't it? They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. And actually, it could go either way. It could be that he was arrested and hauled away. But I don't think it was. I think it was invited him. They said, come on, we, we'll, we'll escort you into the Areopagus and you can, you can explain this to us in further detail. The reason I say that is because in... Um, in Acts 9.27, Barnabas took Paul and brought him. It's the same words. It's the same picture. So I don't think he's under arrest. What is the Areopagus? What, what, what are we talking about here? I always thought of the Areopagus as Mars Hill. So this big open area, and they would go up, and the philosophers would stand around and philosophize at each other. Um, that's possible. That's, that's one of the things. There is actually a place called Areopagus. Areopagus, by the way, is, is Greek for... The Hill of Eros, or the Council of Eros. Eros was the Greek god, or Ares rather. Ares was the Greek god of thunder and war. And so they formed a council in, in his presence, and that's what Areopagus means. That's why the Latin version of that is Mars Hill, because Mars is the Roman version of uh, Ares. So that's the connection there. The Areopagus could be this hill, it could be this open place where they would come up and they would, they would philosophize all day. It was also a council of, of wise men who were gathered together, and they would treat uh, issues of homicide and public disturbances and stuff. And so the, the, the commentators were going back and forth, is this to the hill or is this to the council? Um, I'm inclined toward the council for one reason. That's because at the very end of the chapter, do you remember who believed him? There was Dionysus, the Areopagite. Areopagite means a member of the council. So I kind of think he was taken before the council, although, to be fair, it might not have been, it might have just been that this guy was at that meeting. You know, it didn't have to be the council. 
Here's the real bottom line. Here's the key to hermeneutics. Does it matter? No, it really doesn't because Luke didn't spell it out. So let's press on. So they take him to the Areopagus, and they want to hear from him. This is the place where he will discuss what's been going on. So um, when he gets there, oh, yeah, there's, there's this, this last little kind of add-on bit that Luke throws in there. He says um, that they love to do, the Athenians and the foreigners who were there love to do nothing except tell and hear story something new. And it sounds like, well, Luke is just being mean to the Athenians. Isn't that terrible that he would insert this little comment? It's not just Luke, you guys. There are other commentators who say that the Athenians love to do that. They, they just wanted to hear something new every day. So when a new thought came up, yeah, let's hear that. Put this back in context. Where did Paul come from? He came from Thessalonica. Do you remember what happened in the, the synagogue at Thessalonica? He comes in and he starts preaching, Jesus is this Messiah. The Messiah had to die. The Messiah had to rise again. The only person that can fit that bill is this Jesus. There's nobody else that can qualify for that. And the Thessalonians got upset and said, we don't want to hear that. And when a bunch of Greeks and leading women, they got jealous. They were really upset about that. They didn't want to hear something new. It didn't matter if it was true or not. They just didn't want to hear it. The Athenians, on the other hand, I love to hear something new. I heard somebody one time say the great thing about, I think it was C.S. Lewis, said, when you have an open mind, you have to close it on something. Because if you, open your, if you have an open mouth and you put food in and you don't close it, it falls out and you die. So the Athenians have this open mind that never seemed to close on anything. But who was between the Thessalonians and the Athenians? The Bereans. And what did the Bereans do? The Bereans said, this is new. Now, let me take a look at that. And they picked up their Bibles and they said, now where did you say that was again? And they spent their days analyzing it. And I think that's a beautiful picture of the way we should approach something new. Is not be like the Thessalonians and go, I don't want to know anything new. I got it all figured out. Don't trouble me with something else. And not like the Athenians where we just go, yeah, bring it on. But like the Bereans where we say, all right, now what did you say? Let me, let me analyze that. Let me see what that says. And as evangelicals, we're going to go to the scriptures and analyze that. We're going to go to the scriptures and say, does that agree with what the Bible says? That's what we're all about. So that's the picture that Paul is in. He's in with these people who just want to argue, who just want to hear new things and, and work through all this stuff. And so do you get an idea now why Paul might be provoked? Why his spirit might be provoked while he's in Athens? They've got... Bunches of gods all over the place. They've got these different philosophies. Anything new is entertained. Nobody ever settles on anything. So when he comes in, Paul, now remember who Paul is. Paul walks into this. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He persecuted the church. He hunted down Christians. He was heading to Damascus to arrest people. And on the way, he was thrown to the ground when Jesus Christ showed up and revealed himself. Paul suddenly, in a moment, saw the risen Christ. The Jesus that he hated so much that he wanted to get rid of his followers, Paul runs into this Jesus Christ. He sees him on the road, and Paul is blinded by it. Now, if we understand Galatians and try to put Galatians and Acts together, it appears that after Paul was healed of his blindness and he spent some time in Damascus sharing with uh, the other churches there, he went off into Saudi Arabia. He went off into the desert for three years. And what Paul tells us in Galatians is, is, I didn't receive this gospel from men. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. 
So it appears that Jesus came to Paul and said, here's the truth of the gospel. So now Paul is standing there with all of these idols, with all of these weird philosophies, and in his heart and in his mind, he's going, but Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ is the one who came for us. He is the Messiah. So do you feel provoked by these idols? Did that, does it ever bother you when you read through that? How can you have these idols? And, and if you're provoked, don't be provoked because I'm right and you're wrong. You've got to be right like me. Be provoked because you're going, you look at these people and you go, you have settled for a chunk of wood or a piece of rock or some metal wielded into a shape and you're worshiping that? I am here to offer you the living God, the resurrected Christ, the glory that will last through all of these things. How can you be settling for something like that? Or look to the, the philosophers and say, you guys think pleasure is it? Paul would say, I'm offering you pleasure that endures forever. And if pain attends it for right now, pain attends it. Remember what happened to him in, in uh, Lystra. He was stoned and left for dead. So he's not looking at him saying, well, forget pain. Pain's not part of the process. He's saying pain is, is here. But like the, unlike the Stoics, he's not saying, well, pain is just to be endured and it's just part of the natural course of things and let's press on. What he's saying is pain will have an end. Pain will be completed. Pain will be wiped away. God is going to return and wipe away every tear. Suffering has a purpose in this life, in this time period now, but it's not eternal and it's not something that we should run away from, nor is it something to be embraced and held as just the way it is. Pain is something that the Lord brings. Pleasure is something that the Lord brings. And so when Paul is looking at this, he's provoked because they have settled for so much less. They have settled for tiny little things, passing glories, passing pleasures, things that can't survive. So now let's look at what he says. This is another one of the chances we get to hear Paul's actual preaching. You remember we saw that in Antioch in, in uh, Pisidia where we got this lengthy quote of his preaching. We don't get that too often in Luke. Luke tends to summarize what he says. But here he stops and he backs up and he tells us in a fuller picture, this is what Paul preached at uh, Mars Hill, at the Areopagus. So stand, Paul, standing in the midst, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are very religious in every way. For as I passed along, I observed your objects of worship. I, 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 in every way, you're very religious. The, the word for religious there is that same word for divinities. So I think Paul's kind of agreeing with him. Yeah, you have a different form of God than what I have. And I see that you Athenians are very devoted to this other form of God. You're very religious. He doesn't start by insulting him. He starts by saying, I get that you're into religion. I, I understand that. I see that that's what you want to do, is you're, you're worshiping these things. These objects of worship, what do you think those are? Those are those idols. That, that's a little carved figure sitting in a, in a golden or a silver booth on a street corner that somebody could come by and worship and hope to make that God happy for that one thing. Uh, the, the God of thunder, let's make sure Aries is happy so we don't get thunder this week. Um, the, the harvest is coming up, we better help Cirrus is happy so she will bless us with a, a good harvest. That was their mode of divinity. They, they specialized, the, the gods specialized in different things. 
He says, but as I was going through, I saw one that said to an unknown God. So these Athenians were so into religion and they wanted to make sure they had all their bases covered. They went, you know what? These are all the gods we know of. What if there's a God we don't know about? We better throw something up for him because he must be like these other gods. So we'll put up this extra booth in case there's a God that we missed. We can just point at that and go, see, that's, that's what we're into. That's for you. But Paul says this. He, he tells them, this I proclaim to you. I want to, I want to share with you this God that you don't know. I want to share with you this divinity that you can't understand. And, and I want you to understand that he's so much bigger. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made with hands. So your God of thunder, thunder is something that my God made. Your God of the, the harvest, the harvest is something that's under my God's authority. Your God of the sea, the true, the living God, he made the sea and everything that's in it. And so when you talk about a form of divinity that lives in a little temple that you built, your God's too small. The true, the living God, he is over all of this. He doesn't dwell in temples. He, the temple can't hold him. Even Solomon acknowledged that. When Solomon built the temple, he said, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, much less this house that I've built. Why did he build the house? He said, well, when people come and pray here, would you please hear from heaven? He knew he wasn't containing God. He wanted God to be with them, to hear them, to enjoy him. So the other thing that Paul says is, this God who created everything, who's over all the things that your gods are supposed to be over, who made them, he's not served as though he needed anything. Your gods, if you don't set, if, if let's say there's a, a slight earthquake and one of your gods falls over, you have to go set your God back up. They need you. You have to bring them food. You put food in their temples to feed these gods. The true, the living God, he didn't need anything. He doesn't need a thing. The fancy term for that is his aseity, God's aseity. It comes from the Latin assay, he is. The idea is God just is. He is existence, he is being. He didn't create the world because he was lonely. He didn't create humanity because he wanted somebody to talk to. He didn't create anything out of any need. He is. And the true, the living God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wasn't lonely. The Father delighted in the Son. The Son delighted in the Father. The Spirit delighted in the Son. The Son delighted in the Spirit. They had everything they needed. What more can you add to God's perfection? They had the Trinity. They, do, they weren't lonely. They weren't bored. Our God doesn't need anything. And here's the startling part. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. And that can feel like, well, what a cold, distant, impersonal God. But this is actually good news. Because he doesn't need us. Yet, Paul goes on, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He doesn't do it out of a need. So why does God give to all things life and breath and everything? Because he is so full, because he is so overwhelmingly full, he pours out that fullness onto everybody else. He doesn't do it because he needs us. 
He does it out of his goodness, out of his graciousness. So we don't have to worry about messing it up because if we don't give him what he needs this Tuesday afternoon, he's going he's to withhold something from us. If I don't give him what he needs on Friday, he's not going to have to give me back on Sunday. Our God doesn't need us. That doesn't mean he doesn't want us. It means that he wants us from a position of, I want to give to you, not I need from you. He gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and everything includes existence. So here's the really great news. Do you exist right now? If anybody says no, we're in trouble. If you exist right now, the reason you exist is because one of the things God has given you is existence. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten. If God forgets you, you don't exist. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. And so he gives us life and breath and everything. And so what Paul then goes on to say is, well, if that's true, then why are we in the situation we're in? Well, well he made from one man all of humanity. He formed out of everything, all of humanity. He formed one, out of one man, he formed everyone. And he scattered them across the earth. Now, from a Christian perspective, we look at that and we go, yeah, you know why? Because of the fall. And you know what else? Because of Babel. That's why he scattered everybody, right? Isn't that terrible? He had to, he had to break us up. Otherwise, we would have built a, a stairway to heaven. No, because listen to what Paul says. He, he says, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live upon the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God. He didn't break up everything at Babel because he wanted to keep people isolated. He did it in a very loving, very careful way that they might seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So God created this, this, this world that we're scattered around with the purpose of these people are here for this reason. These people are here for this reason. And there's enough of me left in all of these cultures that they can seek for me. And here's the best news. Yet he's not actually far from us. So it's not like God is playing hide and seek. It's not like he, he, he dove out of the way because this culture almost found him. He puts them out. He says, come to me. Come to me. Seek me. Seek me. Find me. I'm not actually far from you. Now, the next thing Paul does is he quotes two, two uh, poets. The first one he says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's to support his statement, God's not actually far from us. The other thing that that does is that counters the idea of the Stoics. Remember I said the Stoics were pantheists? God is everywhere. So what happens is, is in us, he lives and moves and has his being. In creation, he lives and moves and has his being. Paul quotes one of their own philosophers, poets back to him and says, no, 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 other way around. We, in him, we live. In him, we move. In him, we have our being. So using their own people against him, he says, you Stoics got it wrong. And then he says, even more, one of your, some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. God has created us, we are therefore his offspring. We are his children. When we build something out of stone or wood or metal and we put it in a temple, are we that offspring? 
Who created whom? We carved it. We set it up. We erected it. We put it down there. We worship it. But that can't work. That can't flow. The logic breaks down because we are his offspring. He created us. So this is buttressing his statement. The true God, the living God, doesn't live in temples made by hands. The true, the living God doesn't need anything that we're going to construct and give to him. We're his offspring. So Paul, it's, it's, under, it's, it's, I don't even know what word to use. It's something. He doesn't use scripture. Do you remember the, the sermon in Antioch? He's talking about Jesus, and then he quoted two or three, or I think three psalms to buttress his, his point that this Jesus must be the Messiah. Why did he do that? Because he was in a synagogue talking to Jews who knew the Bible. If he came here to Athens and he quoted scripture, they would have no context to put that in. They had context for their philosophers, for their poets, but they didn't have context for scripture. So he doesn't use scripture yet, but isn't what he said richly soaked, deeply embedded with scripture? He created everything. He doesn't need you. He is sufficient in and of himself. That is a biblical worldview, but he doesn't use scripture with them yet. Now, that doesn't mean never use scripture. Paul used scripture. Paul didn't use scripture. What Paul did is he considered the audience before him. This is troubling because sometimes if you ever study like apologetics, there people will say, this is the only way you can do apologetics, or this is the only way you can do apologetics. And I always feel bad because it's like, well, what about the audience? <laughs> the audience is the one that gets to decide which approach to apologetics is going to work. If they understand scripture, I can quote scripture. If they don't know scripture, maybe I better not go there yet. Maybe I better start a little lower and work my way up to where they are. And then I can begin to introduce this God. He has spoken to us. He's given us his word. Listen to what his word says. So it, it comes in, but it doesn't start there. So he starts with this worldview. He goes into their worldview, and he shows how their own worldview is inconsistent. And pointing to something better. I think what's going on here is what he said is God appointed this times and seasons that people would search for him, that they would look for him. God has left little scraps. He's made sure that in, in different cultures, in different time periods, there's enough truth left in that culture somewhere to make that connection. That the gospel can, can find some place to hook, some place that the, a missionary can come and say, all right, but this doesn't work, and here's what the truth is. I think that's, that's what Paul was getting at when he said that, that that he, that he appointed times and season and places that they may seek him. Not from a place of complete ignorance, but there's scraps. There's enough there that you could begin to piece it together. You can kind of get a feel for what's going on so that at the right time, in the right place, at the right season, when the Christ has come, when the church has been commissioned, when the Holy Spirit's been poured out on them and they go out to the nations and they begin to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, they have a foothold in these different cultures. There's some way to connect with them. There's the story of the uh, peace child. There was a, a, tri a tribe that could not be reached. Whenever they'd start telling the gospel story, they would get to the point where Judas betrayed him and the, the natives would just cheer. That was the best thing ever because they prized deceit over everything else. So the missionaries were frustrated going, how do I tell them about Jesus if they're celebrating Judas? That he pulled a good one on Jesus. How do we get there? This is that concept of there's a little bit of truth left in there. 
When these tribes warred, if they wanted to end the war, one of the tribes would send a child to the other one and say, here's the peace child. And that would be the connection. So the missionaries were able to back up and go, okay, let's not go through that part of the gospel. Let's talk about Jesus coming to us to end the war between God and us. Jesus is the peace child. He's the one who will come and end the war. And then we can get to, and deceit is a bad thing because this God is the God of truth. So that's what I'm talking about when I say that Paul is looking here, where can I land the gospel with these people so that we can get to the next phase, so that we can get to the next part. They need to understand divinity as it truly is. So that's where he goes. And he says, he makes them this promise, the time of ignorance God overlooked. There was a period when the nations were going their own way and God overlooked it. Now, what he means there is not God just went, oh, you're on your own. What he means is God said, that's for now, there's something coming. So what was God doing? While this time of ignorance from about the time of Babel, let's even go back to the fall. During those, those thousands of years between the fall and the coming of Jesus, God was working. He was moving things in place. He was getting things put together. So Galatians 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When the fullness of time had come, when God's plan had been put in place, all of the things that I want to accomplish have now been accomplished. Now is the right time for Jesus to come. Now is the right time for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Now is the right time for Jesus to teach in Galilee. Now is the right time for Jesus to suffer under Pontius Pilate, die, be buried, and rise again. When the fullness of time had come. The time of ignorance, that's over, you guys. That's done. We're done with the time of ignorance. God sent his son, and he now commands all people everywhere to repent. These are the days we live in. He commands everywhere now to repent. We don't look to a pagan society and go, well, that's interesting. We look to a pagan society and go, your motive divinity is wrong. You're worshiping something else. Let me tell you about the true living God. Now is the time to repent. Jesus has come. The gospel has arrived. The person is here. He commands everywhere now, today, to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. We call people to repentance because there is an urgency about it. There is a day coming. Just as like there was a day in the fullness of time when Jesus would be born, there is a day in the fullness of time when Jesus will return and he will judge. So in between those, today, now, is the time of repentance. Now is the time to say, I had my concept of God wrong. Now is the time to say, I've been indulging in the flesh and avoiding pain. And that's wrong. Now is the time to repent. The idols fall over. They're done. Will you repent today? While the door is open, before the judge comes, will you repent? And repent doesn't mean feel bad. Plenty of people feel bad. They sin, they feel bad, it's terrible. Isn't that something? They're in jail feeling bad about what they did. And as soon as they're out, they do it again. Repentance is to say, Lord, I agree with you. This was wrong. This was dead wrong. And it's not sufficient. It's not enough. Sin can be like this dark shadow, this really dark, dark shadow that falls between us and God. 
so that we can't see Jesus' face, his glory, his beauty, and say, that's better. We, we look to the dark shadow and say, that's sufficient. Paul is warning us, the dark shadow, the day is coming when the light will shine on that. And if you haven't found Jesus beyond the shadow to be beautiful, the judge to be the one who's full of mercy, then it's problems. Today is the day of repentance. God now has said, repent. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And how do you know? How do you know that we got the right one? How can we tell? What I told you at the beginning of the book of Acts, what is the primary apologetic of the book of Acts? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. How do you know that Jesus Christ is the one who will be the judge of the living and the dead? Paul says, because he gave us assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus now has authority over death. He has broken death. He has destroyed death. He has overcome death. God raised him, and now he is the one who has its reins. He's the one who will decide. So for, for Paul, this is not theory. This is not some notion about, oh, the resurrection, wouldn't that be great? This is, I have seen the risen Christ. I've been confronted by him. I was called to repentance by the risen Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, is now exalted to the right hand of God. For Paul, it was personal. It was real. He knew him. That's why he was provoked by the idols. So when he gets to the, the, um, the resurrection, unfortunately, here's the response. Now, when he heard, they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. What? People don't rise from the dead. Nobody mocks resurrection today, do they? Have you been on Facebook? Yeah. People mock the idea that somebody might rise from the dead. Here's the point. It doesn't happen very often. Of course, it's unique. It's a special thing. It never happens. That's why when it does happen, it's a miracle. If it happened all the time, big deal. It doesn't happen, but it did. That's why it's important. So when people mock the idea of the resurrection, yeah, right, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, he really did. Nobody rises from the dead. I know nobody rises from the dead, but Jesus did. It authenticates who he is and what he's done and what God's opinion of him is. He has risen from the dead. And so if you ever say that, if you ever get to that point in the conversation and they mock, 2,000 years ago in Athens, the philosophers did the same thing. It's, it's part of that broken, fallen nature. But now is the time to repent. So here's one of the things. I read a, a, um, a devotional. Uh, this was from 2014. And, and here's something that they said. Paul came to Corinth speaking the gospel in simple terms. He had just journeyed from there, or journeyed there from Athens where he had drawn on his education and tried to communicate the gospel in the style of a philosopher. He even quoted from a Greek poet's. The result, the great missionary fell flat on his face. I can picture him entering into his diary, don't ever try this again. The cross doesn't need my verbal decorations. Some people read this and say Paul failed at, at uh, Mars Hill, that it was a failure. And the reason is because in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 2, Paul says, and when I came to you, brothers, uh, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So some people take that and go, well, Jesus, I mean, uh, Paul felt like he failed at Mars Hill. And so when he got to Corinth, he went, I'm not doing that anymore. Did he fail? Listen to the rest of this. Some mocked. Yes, some did, indeed. So Paul went out from their midst. Oh, uh, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again. So you got some rejecting, some going, I want to hear more. So when Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. So did Paul fail? This sounds to me like the separating of the sheep and the goats. The, the goats headed off to one side. Ah, you're full of it. Nobody raises from the dead. There are some in the middle we don't know about. And they said, we want to hear more about this. Can, can we do this again? And some went, yeah, I believe that. That's true. That's a beautiful truth. That's a truth that I can hold on to. And not only was it some believed him, the, the, the phrasing there, some, um, it's actually certain is another way to translate. Everybody translates it some, so I'll go with that. But the word behind it is certain men joined him. And then I think it might be a, a, the way he's approaching it because it says among them were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So certain ones joined Paul. So I would say Paul did not fail. Paul succeeded in exactly what he was doing. Here's the thing. What Paul was doing in Athens was not a revival. It was not a big tent revival. What it was was apologetics. And big tent revival is great because you get a bunch of people who are right on the border or familiar with Christianity and they become convicted and they come forward and they give their lives to Christ and hail amen. That's great when it happens. But more often than not, the task that we have is apologetics. What Paul was doing was when he was talking to these people at Mars Hill is he was trying to remove obstacles that they had. Let me get this out of the way. You don't understand divinity. You're worshiping idols. Let me move that out. Let me move this out. And here's the thing about apologetics. It's slow. It is just slow. You don't go on Facebook, quote somebody, and have an immediate response from people very often. Often it takes time. You have to go, well, let, let me, what do you believe? Why do you believe that? Where do you get that from? You know why that won't work? Because of this. And what you're doing at that point, that's not sharing the gospel. That's clearing the obstacles so that you can get to the point where you say, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus came to take our sin. It killed him. He spent three days in the tomb, and then he rose again. He overcame it all. He beat it all. But the first thing is you've got to clear out the obstacles. You've got to move them aside. Let me explain to you what divinity really is like. Let me explain to you why he would come for us, not out of need like your gods, but out of love. And so all I can say is it's a slow process. And the results are mixed, aren't they? Some mocked, some wanted more, some believed. That's how apologetics goes. And, and apologetics is not having all the clever big phrases and, and fancy terms. Sometimes it's just listening to a person and, and, and hearing what they say and go, okay, but I don't think that holds. I don't think that'll work that way. Enter into their worldview and show them where the weakness is. And here's the hope. Right in the middle of this, Paul says, because he allotted times and locations and seasonings that they may seek God. There's still glimmers of hope, places you can land, things you can hold on to in the conversation to try to lead somebody out. You will not succeed every time. If you ever take an apologetics course and they say, this is the way to do it and you will succeed, 
run screaming in the other direction. It won't work that way. People, because what you're forgetting is that people are too dynamic. People all have different things. Some folks, when you begin to put their, your finger on their weakness, they squirm because they don't like it, and they try to get out from underneath it. And so sometimes apologetics just won't work. But sometimes it will. And if we follow the trajectory that we've seen since Paul came into to Greece, what we remember is the first convert he ran into was Lydia. And the Lord opened her heart to understand the scriptures. The Bereans, when they heard, they said, let me, let me think about this. They turned to the word and the Lord opened their heart to understand. And when, when Luke talks about the Gentiles, he says, and those who are appointed to eternal life believed. This is part of that idea that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And so he calls people to himself, and he takes extra steps to make sure eyes open, hearts open. And so that's your hope in apologetics. That's your hope in evangelism. That's your hope standing on Mars Hill, surrounded by idols. Now, our idols today are much more sophisticated. They're not typically carved out of stone or metal. They're made out of digital stuff or any number of things. But don't be fooled for a second. We still have idols. We still have other things that we run to, that we seek, that we love. And so that's what should be provoking you. If we've done it right, we're provoked not because I'm right and you're wrong, but because God is and you're missing him. You're settling for less. And that's what should provoke us. And may God give us a heart like that to be provoked. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for all of us that we would be the apologists that you've called us to be, um, not because we've studied all the right books and know all the right phrases and understand the huge philosophical complex issues, but Lord, because you are the people you made us to be in the situation you put us in with the friends, the family, the associates, the neighbors that we have. And so, Lord, we're it. Would you equip us? Would you fill us with faith? Would you fill us with hope? And Lord, we thank you so much that you've left traces of the truth so that now in this time of repentance, we have a place to land, we have a place to help people find so that they might know you because in you we live and move and have our being. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.